0: Chapter 9, I've been looking at, so far, Daniel's prayer and God's divine program. And as, of course, as we continue in this, I I believe, this magnificent book of the Old Testament, we definitely, in chapter 9, see clearly the heart of Daniel, how he lived so consistently before God, and how he was a man of deep prayer. And his prayer was, as I said last week, baptized in in-depth Bible study. We're going to find out more about that tonight, how well he was studied in Scripture. We already saw that uh, in the Persian period, Daniel is now eight years old. And last time I, we met in this passage of Scripture, he was reading Jeremiah chapter 25, and discovered there that uh, God's people would return to Jerusalem and leave captivity after 70 years. And he realized that it was 6.05 when he got into this thing, and, and now it was 5.38. And, of course, they were only a few years away from getting out of exile. So it was, it was a very exciting time but it was a time he discovered through his study of Scripture, he understood God's revelation to them. And so Daniel, we see him now in chapter 9 making himself ready to do the next step God would require His people to do before the Lord would actually shower His blessing upon them and remove them from Babylonian captivity and slavery into, in, back into their own land, back into Jerusalem, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, and get back into the system of what they were used to before, and that is worshiping God in Jerusalem. As we looked at the, some of the details already in this chapter, I think you'll take notice how God uses human prayer how God uses the prayer of a man in tune with God's will to fulfill his divine program. God has, has designed prayer in his program. And he wants all of us to be involved in that process. Because we, we see right here in this book that prayer moves the hand of God. Could you imagine that God listens to us? It's, it's incomprehensible, isn't it? That God says, I'll listen to you when you pray to me. And I'll answer you. That, that's really my, it blows my mind every time I think about it, but but nonetheless it's true. God uses human prayer to fulfill this divine program. So Daniel, last time we saw in chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, that he turns his attention to prayer. We saw, first of all, that God's servant was in tune with God's program and the need of God's people to be delivered. He was in tune with God's timing. We saw, secondly, that God's servant was immersed in God's Word in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. And then, thirdly, we saw that God's servant... immediately went to the priority that was needed before God would deliver them, and that's to seek God's face in prayer. And from verses 1 through 4, especially in verse number 3, we see Daniel, before he opens his mouth before God, gets himself ready. And he prayed in a specific way, with specific characteristics. He prayed attentively in verse 3. In verse 3, he play, prayed fervently, Intimately, reverently, and humbly. So Daniel's posture before God included all five of those characteristics. The reason why is because he must come before God and represent not only himself, but a whole nation. So he adjusts himself Godward before he begins to speak. This is all preparation. And then he begins to direct his words towards God. And the first time uh he does that, in verse number four, look what it says, verse four. He says he uses a special designation for God. I pray to the Lord my God. That is the covenant name for God, which means the one true God. It appears seven times in this chapter and is not found anywhere else in the book. And is it's the very name of god for god that constitutes an appeal to the special relationship that jehovah or yahweh had with israel who alone knew his name no other nations knew his name god had no other people on the earth when they were in exile that's all he had he didn't have the other nations he didn't call them they were still steeped in their idolatry in their paganism in their false uh Systems of worship. His people was in exile. And his people weren't praying to him. They weren't ready for prayer. God had to discipline them. He had to put them in a place where he got their attention again. And it took 70 years to do that. But the main point, I guess, in verse number 3, was that when, when we come to God in prayer, our spiritual attitude is of primary importance that in prayer attitude holds priority over the act itself. You see all kinds of postures of prayer in Scripture. You see people with their face to the ground. You, you see people uh, raising their hands and their eyes looking to heaven and praying. You see people in the kneeling posture in prayer in Scripture. All kinds of postures of prayer But before the posture, it is the attitude that is important. It's making yourself ready to pray, being conscious of what you're doing. So now, we come to the part that we're going to look at this evening in this passage of Scripture. Daniel's ready. He's clothed himself with sackcloth and ashes. He's humbled himself before God and he now he speaks. As I said last time, sometimes I think we're too quick to speak, we're too quick to rush into God's presence and ask, usually ask God what we want and not what really he wants. And now, though Daniel, after preparation, opens his mouth, and when he does open his mouth, he speaks frankly to God, he speaks honestly to God, he speaks directly to God. That God and Daniel have each other's attention. Now, at that point, where where we ended last week, look at verse number 4, the second part of that verse, Daniel now is in a position where he admits culpability. And I'll explain what that means. He gives an admission of culpability, not only for himself, but for the whole nation. He is praying as an intercessor before God for the whole of the people, and not just the people in that went into exile in Babylon, but the people that were scattered throughout the world who were God's people. He's praying for everybody. And he says there in verse number 4, I pray to the Lord my God, and then notice what he says, and confessed." He's ready to confess. He uses a Hebrew word that's a reflexive. It means he will himself keep confessing sin, meaning it's talking out about persistent prayer. Daniel will not finish until he's done confessing. That's what it means. You'll see Daniel's confession is an omission of culpability for violation against God's character, God's principles, and God's standard. Remember, sin is always against God. Always. It's either against his character, his principles, or his standard. If if there, in a sense, were no God, there would be no sin. There would be no violation. But because there is a God, there is a standard, he has a character, and he has principles, and we violate those things, and that's sin. Look down at verse number 20 of chapter 9, which gives a sense of Daniel's prayer of confession. He says, Now while I was speaking and praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. That's what he was doing in prayer. Confession to God usually always precedes any kind of petitions or supplications. That means anything you start asking for yourself or any petitions on the behalf of other people, it must start with confession. There must be confession. Well, Maybe not first, but it's going to be very close to how one would pray before God as a model of prayer. And we do gain some kind of model of praying from Daniel that I think is quite substantial and significant for us to use very practically in our own prayer life. It's time for Daniel to lay it all out before God. It's time for him to lay it on the table. Confession acknowledges to God what he already knows. In fact, the reasons why he sent his people into exile in the first place was because of their sin, that they were not seeing because sin had blinded them, but God was seeing and he had to do something about it. That's why they're in this mess in the first place. They are not in this mess in the first place because God wanted them to be there necessarily. They are in this mess because they put themselves in this mess. Why? Because they violated... God's character, one of his principles, or one of his standards. So real confession acknowledges that the problem lies not with God, nor with his prophets and preachers necessarily, not with God's word, not with God's law, not with God's covenant, but the problem lies in the heart of man. That's the problem. That's why the contemporary prophet Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. He was talking about these people at this time, but we're no different than them. We're just like them. So there's no rush into God's presence at all to ask for things, but instead we observe a sensitivity to God, which causes Daniel to first worship the Lord, give God his rightful place, which, of course, he has not had his rightful place amongst his people for 70 years. And so Daniel includes at least three things in the content of his prayer. I'll look at two tonight. The third I'll leave for next time. But look at verse number four. Here is the first in the content of prayer. In verse four of the last part, and said... Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindnesses for those who love him and keep his commandments. What is he talking about there? He just said that he's going to make confession. He's not making confession here. You know what he starts with? He starts with adoration. Giving God his rightful place. How do you do that? He does it very simply. And very pointedly in Scripture, look what he says. He says several things about God in verse 4. He says, Alas, O Lord, this is the first thing he says, I'm coming to a God who's great and awesome. See, adoration is given to the character of God. In verse 2, we saw that God's servant is immersed in the word of God. Well, in this whole section, we will see how much Daniel was saturated in the Word of God because we see him understanding the book of Deuteronomy, we see him understanding Genesis, we see him understanding the book of Psalms, we see him understanding the principles of Proverbs, and he brings it all in, in this prayer. And he says, this is the first thing he says about God, in in the sense of, if we adore God, how are we to adore Him? Well, look at what he says. The first thing he says, God, you're great and awesome. Now, does God want to hear that from us? Sure He does. Because when He does hear from the lips and the tongue and the heart of His people, we are acknowledging who is really our Lord. In fact, where did Daniel get something like this from? Well, uh, like I, I mentioned before, Deuteronomy. He understood Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. Don't turn there right, right at this moment. It says, For the Lord your God is is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and it says this, the awesome God who does not show partiality. And then he goes on to continue the passage of Scripture. He understood before the people went into the land, before God sent them into the promised land, the, the, the book of Deuteronomy, which is, of course, Deutero is too, the second law. It's an explanation, a further explanation of the practical implications of the law of, uh, of Moses that the people were to use every single day of their lives, it was, listen, if you do what God says to do, you're going to be blessed. If you don't do what God says to do, then cursings come upon you. That's basically what was going on in in Deuteronomy, and it was also an explanation of Leviticus. He understood Leviticus too. But he uses, not only in, in this passage, but in the Deuteronomy passage, this little phrase, Lord, you're awesome. You're great. There's no one like you. There's no one as mighty as you. But the word awesome comes from the Hebrew root that means to fear. And thus the word means one who inspires fear. See, God's greatness and power produces awe and wonder in frail human beings like us. That when we look on the mighty works of God in the scripture, and we know that they are true, and this is where God's people were to always point their attention, remember what God has done. And He's going to mention it later on in Daniel. It goes back to the Old Testament, goes back to Moses, and said, and but I'm not going to look there right now. But that's what it is, is okay, you didn't see God work right here, but God has worked here. In fact, God has worked in creation. Genesis records that. All you gotta do is look at your eyeballs and see what God has done. See how great and awesome He is, how gigantic He is, how vast this universe is, and it should inspire in, in us, inside of our being some kind of fear of how mighty he is. If not, we don't really pray. Because we figure we can work it out ourselves. This is where he starts. Back in the book of Proverbs, remember scripture said that true knowledge had a starting point. True knowledge in, in Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge. True knowledge starts with and is dependent upon the reverence of the Lord or the fear of the Lord, that He's great, that He is awesome. Of course, it doesn't just stop there at creation. It stops in how He gave us the Word of God, how He didn't speak in a corner, how He always lets us know what He's going to do, always. Even today, lets us know what He's going to do. We spoke about that in Thessalonians this morning, and all through Thessalonians. He's not speaking in the dark. He's not speaking quietly. He's screaming out at us. This is what I'm doing, guys. Looking through Daniel's on how he's been working in the nations. And he'll, he's not even done yet. We're right in the middle of it. Or at the three quarters into it. Could you see how great and awesome God is by just looking at history? What he's been doing, and he's not done, and we're part of it. We're all part of the program. So, see, we're we're not in this as some kind of isolated entity, separated from what God is doing with Israel. We're all part of it. It's one big thing. He doesn't want us to separate ourselves like from that, so we can continue to say God's awesome. He's great. He's Almighty. William Arno, in his chapter entitled The Root of Knowledge, explains, from Proverbs 1.7 at least, with deep devotion to God, he says, the fear of the Lord means he who does not reverently trust in God knows nothing as he ought to know. That's what sin usually does. He further explains, if there were no fear of God, there would be no reverence for moral law in the bulk of mankind if moral restraints are removed from the multitude society reverts to a savage state. That's exactly what happened to Israel. Soon as we stop seeing God as great and awesome and fear Him, then all the standards get lowered. And our standard gets higher. And when we do that, we see no big deal about doing one activity against another activity and so therefore... We really end up in a, some, some kind of savage state of mind. Remember that in Proverbs there was two facts when he talked about the fear of the Lord: the fear, fear as a sense of terror, in the sense of that my knees are knocking together when I'm considering the power of God and the awesomeness and the greatness of God, and that secondly, that fear as a sense of awe and reverence. I am awed by God. So, wisdom cannot be had until one has a healthy fear of God Almighty. The definition of fear we had back there in Proverbs was to fear God is to be afraid enough to care what He says, remember? And to be humble enough to submit to His authority. But what happens is sin blinds us to the reality that God is great and powerful, and consequently, there is no awe in our heart, in our mind. We have no fear to be found, and what happens when that happens? We no longer adore God and esteem Him and give His give Him His rightful place that is due Him. We can't even make confession of sin if we're not at that point as His children. Let's go back. uh, We're still right there in Daniel. Look, Look at the next thing he says in verse number four: A God who is faithful to keep His promises. Where does this go back to? Let's go back to Genesis for a minute, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. What are at least a few of his promises back in Genesis chapter 12? Look what he says here. Now the Lord said to Abraham, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, in verse 1, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will, verse 3, bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a promise that God gave to Abraham, saying, listen, I'm faithful to this covenant. I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to make you a a great nation. If somebody curses you, I'm going to curse them. Those who bless you, I'll bless them. That was a promise that God says I'm going to keep with his people. And so, see, he's acknowledging and adoring God for his keeping his promises. He's a promise-keeping God. What he says is going to come to pass. But see, what happens is that when you don't adore God and you don't have awe for God, then you lose, lose the sense that God is faithful. You lose the sense that God's going to keep his promises because when t- too much time gets in between his promises and what he, pro- what he said and his promises, in, in your present situation, you give up. Seventy years in the captivity, the people are probably saying, I think God forgot about us. But that's not the case. God didn't forget so he says, listen, I'm going to adore you, Lord, for your, because you're great and awesome. I'm going to adore you because of your, you faithfully keep your promises. And then he says this in verse number 4 of Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to adore you because you're a God who loves his people. A loving kindness for those who love him. Psalms tells us, oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, for God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindnesses. Meaning this, he will stand true to his people even while they're in exile. Even while they're in trouble, his promises still are going to stand. They are not going to change. But to acknowledge before God in, in an adoring way that, Lord, I know you love me. That's why in the New Testament you see all these references to God's love for his people. We, we need to know, always know, That God loves us. That God is working on our behalf. Right? That God is working things for the good to those, those who what? Love God. Those who are called according to his purpose. But we love him because he first loved us. That principle is still for us. But nonetheless... Look over to uh, Micah if you can find it in your Bibles. You probably haven't been in Micah a long time, but look what he says, how he puts it in this way before his people. As far as this whole thing about love is concerned, he says it this way, Micah chapter 7, verse number 18 through 20. He says this in verse 18, "Who Who is a God like you? What kind of God is he? who pardons iniquity and passes over rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession. He does not restrain his anger forever because he delights in, look what it says, unchanging love. Verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities under foot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depth of the sea. Verse 20, you will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham which you swore to, your, to our forefathers from the days of old. See, saying this, listen, God's love is not going to change because you sin so much. That's, that, that's amazing. We have to ask in our own life, when we sin, does God's love change towards us? The answer to that question is no. It's no. But we think it does. See, God who gives His word to His people, He gives it to them to obey. Go back to Daniel, verse number 4. He adores God because He's given them the word of God. And He says this at the end of verse number 4. It says... He keeps His commandments. He keeps His commandments. And of course, He expects His people to obey them at the end of verse 4. A covenant, loving kindness of those who love Him and keep His commandments. That God gives commandments to His people for them to be obeyed, not to be broken. For them to listen to it and not to spurn them. So from these scriptures the people are reminded that their great God has not changed in his character. They have changed. But that has to be admitted. He is a God who gives what his people need. And his people need forgiveness, hope, and covenant fulfillment. That's what they need. But it is because the people have sinned that they do not experience the mercy and grace of God and they have no awe before God because their sin has blocked that c- communion between them and God. And they don't have this awesome picture of Him. They don't have a sense that He keeps His promises anymore. And remember, they don't have a sense that God loves them. Remember the last word of the prophets, Malachi? I say I love you, you say to me, where have you loved us, Lord? That's what's going on. Remember, Malachi is the last word of the prophets. This is a this is hundred years after this time. They're already in the temple back in Jerusalem, and now Malachi speaks, and they're still questioning God about whether he loved them or not. See, that shows hypocrisy. That shows that there is no adoration before God. It shows the same thing in our own life. All right, when he finally does that and gets to that, he comes to a sec- the second part of his prayer, the second content Thing, uh, that is a con- the content of his prayer. Look at verse number 5. He says this. He begins, this is it. He, he, he brutally and spe- specifically confesses. He, once he adores God, he is now ready to confess. I think it should always be adoration in our prayer before any confession. Always adoration first. Then confession. See, once God is exalted and adored, and now acknowledgement of culpability can ensue in not only His prayer, but our prayer too. In fact, Daniel piles on confession by using five different verbs for sin and then mentions Israel's sins at least 19 times in this chapter. He's giving a comprehensive confession. This is no general confession. This is specific. Weaving in and out of all their manipulation and sin for all the years that brought them into captivity. He's giving an indictment before God of the enormity of Israel's sin, and he's included in it. We saw Daniel has been a very faithful man for through this whole process. Has he not? He's prayed, but he includes himself in it. He doesn't see himself apart from the the nation, uh, the rest of the nation. He sees himself right in there with them. And so he makes confession. Look what it says in verse number five. This is a this is a, one of these flat out statements. It's given in a perfect tense. And look what he says: "We have sinned," meaning if you want to put it just right out there, we sin. Meaning this, you know what? There's no getting around it anymore. We understand, we realize that we have sin. We're not making excuses anymore. We're not trying to justify what we have done anymore. We're just coming before you now, the God who we adore, and say, we have sinned. God knows that already. It's no surprise to him. That's why he's put them in exile. But it's taken all this time for them to say to him, we've sinned. And then look what he does. He makes this grocery list of verbs in verse number 5. Here's the first one. It says, we have sinned. Here's the first verb. It means, this verb right here means to miss the goal, to miss the mark of God's will. That God's goal marked off for them holy living and how to please God and they missed it. Down to verse number 8 of Daniel 9, it says, Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Very emphatic. We've sinned against you. We understand that. We're in a terrible place. We feel it. It's consumed us. It's brought us into captivity. Lord, it's our fault, not yours. It's our fault. See, this is real confession. He, but he... He just can't leave it at the word sin that you missed the mark. It's like that's the only tip of the iceberg. second one he says this is, look, in verse number 5, we we committed iniquity. Here's the second word he uses. This word means to do something wrong, but it means uh, very literally to bend or twist or distort something. Not only did we miss the mark of God's will, But God's will and God's word that came to us, we twisted it. We manipulated it. We distorted it. We perverted it. We sinned in a way where we veered off the straight and narrow road and made the path that was straight crooked. Isn't that what sin is? Sin is really a a twist of what's true and right to our own liking. It's a disobedience to God. It's, a, it's now a distortion or a, a crookedness that has come into our life. We've committed iniquity. We've twisted the whole thing. But he's not done yet. Look at verse number 5. We acted also wickedly. This is actually, usually this word describes one who is guilty of crimes against humanity. That means that Because they have moved away from God, they treated people all kinds of bad ways. Princes didn't distribute food to the poor. They didn't care about the poor. They didn't care about the widow, the orphan. They didn't care about the neighboring countries that they were supposed to be alike to. They didn't care about that anymore. So therefore, they acted wickedly toward humanity. They were committing sins against people. That's what this word means. This is w- wickedness, even in Proverbs. When Proverbs uses the word wickedness, it means really a dreadful extent of moral blindness that spurns the wisdom of light, which usually leaves them in, with the, in, in the kind of the thick of darkness. But it's a, a, a twisted road which they desire to follow with all kinds of dangers uh, that has no care for people no care for those who are in it with you. So he's saying, listen, not only have we sinned against God and missed the mark of God's will, not only have we taken what God has given us that was straight and made it crooked, but even the people that we were supposed, to, we were called to to be an example, to exemplify the mercy and the grace and the glory and goodness of God, we misused them also. then he says this in verse 5 and we rebelled is, is this enough to explain their sin rebellion is a word usually to describe their guilt the, the crimes actually the crimes against God himself that wickedness is towards people that rebellion is towards God so on the human level I'm, I'm a sinner God word I'm a sinner now all this, what what did it cause? Look at the last thing he says in verse number five, or what verse am I on anyway? Uh, yeah, look what he says. The next thing, even turning aside, we turn aside. It means to turn aside from refusing to obey his commandments and his ordinances verse number 5. See, they refused to obey the Lord's declarations concerning the kind of behavior that is acceptable and the kind of behavior that is not acceptable to Him. They understood that. Israel's sinful rebellion was against the totality of God's instructions in Scripture. Now, with all that, if they didn't listen to the Lord, if they didn't adore the Lord, why should they obey Moses? Why should they obey the prophets? Why should they listen to anybody? Matter of fact, look what he addresses in verse number 6. Daniel realized that even at that attitude had to be confessed. Look what he says in verse 6. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. And of hence, the meaning of the... Hebrew word sure which means utterly to turn their back on the Lord completely they just didn't want to listen anymore they just didn't want to listen that's what he says to them I don't know how far I should go tonight. can leave it right there. But look what it says in verse 7 and verse number 8. Something's going on a little bit differently than what he just said there. He's kind of like making a contrast in these passages of Scripture between their unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness. And look what what he says in verse number 7. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Verse 8, open shame belongs to us O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Shame of face, really, literally, what it means, actually it meant that their unfaithfulness and the horrible condition brought about their own sin, which of course was under Yahweh's judgment and was evident to all. They were a disgrace to all. This open shame means, you know what? We've done all these things, and everybody knows about it. All the nations around know, look at your people. They don't, they don't have a, a place to worship anymore. They don't have a city. They don't have a name. They in, a, in a way, they don't even have a God. See, that just brought shame upon them. To the point where everybody knew. Everybody knew that God's people, quote, unquote, were unfaithful to him while at the same time the people knew god remained faithful why did they know that because daniel was still speaking the message was still to them remember we're real close here this is the prayer before exile they know they're going to be released they know they have a hope they know they have a future they know god is in it to bless them so see this prayer is a is a show of this turn where they utterly turned their backs from the Lord, this prayer is a show of their turn back to the Lord. And isn't that what confession is? Isn't that what adoration is? That you are now going this way and now you turned around and are going in the right direction? See, there's hope here. Confession is the sign of hope that the heart is coming alive to God again. No longer dead. And what disgrace did they have anyway? Their land was overrun by enemy soldiers. Their great city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Their holy temple was desecrated, robbed and burned. Showing this, that the Lord is absolutely faithful to fulfill His judgment. But it it says something else too, that the Lord is also absolutely faithful to to fulfill His promises. And that's what the, the sense they were getting as Daniel prayed for himself and the nation. Because he says, not only that the Lord is faithful and that we're unfaithful, but look at in verse number 9 and 10, it says, The Lord is merciful and forgiving, while we are rebellious and disobedient. He says this in verse number 9 The Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God, to walk in his teachings which he set before us through his servant, the prophets. They now are, as a nation, understanding how merciful and forgiving God was and how rebellious they were. See, that's confession. You can't confess unless you know what you've done. But another thing they realized, too, in verse 11, that God's word is true and what he says he means, meaning this, that sin will always bring consequences. It will always keep you longer than you want to stay and it will make you pay more than you want to pay. It will always do that. They, they realize that. Now look at verse 11. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. What happens when that happens? So the curse, from where? Leviticus, Deuteronomy, has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against Him. See, he's saying here the curse pronounced under oath is what it means. That, you know what, the scripture back then that said, listen, if you don't obey God, God wants to bless you, but if you don't obey him, what's going to happen, you're going to get cursed. See, after a while, people say, yeah, God's lost long-suffering. He's not going to do that. You know what they're saying here? This is what they're saying. God's word is true and he, he means what He says. Does it take 70 years of captivity for them to understand that? Yeah. Yep. Yahweh has promised judgment upon Israel if they broke the law. And by His servant Moses, God promised blessing in the case of obedience. And I don't want to look at the passage of Scripture uh, because it's, it's quite long. But curses as a penalty... For disobedience, it's right there in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-eight. The whole of Deuteronomy chapter twenty-eight says it's just a list of blessing, 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 blessing. You do this, this happens. You do this, you get crops. You do this, you have children. You do this, you're going to have. You do this, you do this. But if you don't do this, you're not going to have this. You're not going to have this. You're not going to have rain. You're not going to have crops. You're not going to have all these things. All these cursing comes upon you. Well, see what happens with Israel is they violated it all, and so he says in verse. Number 11, that God has poured out on us. It it means literally curses have rained down on us. And we know it. We know it's our fault. In a sense, they were saying, you know what? We deserve it. We deserve it. Well, let's look at a few passages. Let's go over to Deuteronomy 29. I'm not going to read verse Deuteronomy 28, which talks about the curses and the blessings. But look at what it says in Deuteronomy 29. Just a few verses. Four verses. It says in verse 24, this is, of course, after the people have sinned and committed sin. What will the nations say about them? All around them. Look what it says in verse 24. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to this land? Why this great outburst of anger? Verse 25, Deuteronomy chapter 29. Then men will say, what will they say? Because they forsook the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. Verse 26. They went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they have not known and whom he had not allotted to them, verse 27, therefore the anger of the Lord burned against that land to bring upon it every curse which is written in the book, verse 28, and the Lord uprooted them, here it is, from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land as it is this day, it says in Deuteronomy did they did God lay this all out before this all happened? Yes. It was all very clear. This is language that is not hard to understand. And yet they did exactly the opposite of what God said. And I don't think they believed God was gonna bring down curses on them. In fact, what so shocked them as far as to the extent of God's anger and wrath is well, look, look back at Daniel. L- look what he says here. In verse number 12. See, God's word is true in what God says he does. Look what it says in verse 12. Thus he has confirmed his words which he had spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us. Look what he says. To bring us on us great calamity for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. They never thought God would wipe Jerusalem off, off the face of the earth and destroy the temple too and then remove his people who are supposed to be a testimony and a light to the world completely out of the picture. They never expected Never. So we're talking about God keeping his word, man. He means what he says. And then look what it says in verse 13 of Daniel 9. And as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us. Now they realize what has happened now. Yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Verse 14. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done but we have not obeyed his voice. See, here's the confession. Now, 14 verses in detail and I didn't even look at all the references that he was talking about but if you look at the whole the whole of it The impact is unbelievable. And the enormity of their sin was great. See, it was not until they understood their sin, how God saw it 70 years before that. When they saw it like God saw it, then they were able to say all these things, that God's Word is true and what God says He means, that God's Word is true and what God says He does that the Lord is merciful and forgiving, but they were rebellious and disobedient, that the Lord is faithful and they were unfaithful and they were the problem, their heart was the problem, and God's word was never the problem. God's servants were never the problem. God's covenant was never the problem. God's law was never the problem. It was always them. And it took all that time. See, God's justice demands His people be punished for Sins against himself. His very character and word were at stake. So, if you understand this kind of stuff, do you understand why when you get to the New Testament there has to be a stress on the justice of God when it comes to sin? See, a person has to understand that they're under God's wrath. And there's nothing they can do to be removed from that wrath unless they run to Jesus Christ in repentance of their sin, embracing Him by faith, in confession of their sins. That's how one gets saved. That's how one gets delivered from the eternal wrath of God. And it is no different on how God dealt with Israel. And so here we've been going along in Daniel and we come to chapter 9 and we have a whole different thing going on here. And now, in chapter 9, he explains why the exile, why all this destruction, why all this stuff going on. It's because the people sinned against God. And God said back in Deuteronomy, listen, if you don't obey me, I have to bring curses upon you. I must, because my character requires it, and I cannot alter my character because of your disobedience. You can't do it. Just as my love doesn't change when you sin." My judgment does not change in the sense when you sin too. I must carry that out too. See, so all right. We need to approach the Lord with fear. Humbling ourselves before God. Imploring His mercy. And renew our our covenant to strive and devote ourselves unreservedly to the Lord. And of course, and as we pray, we first should come before Him, adoring Him. And then secondly, confessing to Him in detail. As far as we can explain it. So we can properly, again, respond to God's principles and to His very character. He will hear and deliver us. He will forgive our sins. That's why that first John passage of Scripture is there. Confess your sin. Right? And He'll forgive you of your sin and all your unrighteousness. He'll wipe it all out. So the relationship is intact. And what are we talking about here in Daniel? We're talking about a restored relationship. We're talking about people getting back to worship God. That's what we're talking about. See, God looks and sees that and holds that at a high standard. And so, if we can glean anything, let's glean at least the last things that I've mentioned here on how to approach God. And um, I know we lost an hour. I hate time change. Whoever, whoever came up with that I want I want his name <laughs> but it always messes your your biological clock up doesn't it I mean you feel like oh, Lord. Uh, everyone, I'm looking up I'm standing up here looking at you guys and you're like oh, man. well anyway let's get ourselves ready for the Lord's table all right and uh, let me pray again I thank you Lord for the word of God it's it's, it's so pointed. It's so, it's so direct. Um, I pray, Lord, you just allow, allow us and enable us to implement the truths found here. That uh, every day we, we would practice and learn how to adore you because we're understanding your character more. We're understanding the implications of your love and your justice more. We're understanding the extent of the death of Christ on our behalf more. Well, understanding uh, that if we grieve or quench the Spirit of God, we've lost the power for the Christian life, and we've quenched, we've quenched the person. Make us more tender-hearted and forgiving. And I pray, Lord, ultimately that our adoration would make us, uh, put us in a stance where we are seeing clearly our sin. We are truly fearing you and loving you And that we can confess to you then what's going on in our life because we see clearly what it is. Because your righteousness and light exposes it. And I pray, Lord, that we would come and make confession to you after preparing our heart. Lord, I pray we would be a praying people. Lord, if we can just practice prayer how it would open the doors of heaven and accomplish your work. I thank you that you do use human beings to carry out your divine plan, and you have designed in that prayer. And so, Lord, let us bow humbly before you every day and pray to you. And I pray we would pray effectually, because we know that the prayer of a fervent and righteous man accomplishes much before you. Tonight, Lord, as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table, let us uh, again examine ourselves for sin, for our relationship to you, that if we acted wickedly towards people, that we would make those things right, relationships right. If we have acted rebelliously towards you, that we would also confess those sins and make them right. And I pray then we would come to the Lord's table, the visible elements that you've given us in the death of Christ and his, his incarnation and coming in the flesh, bearing the load of sin and washing our sin away so we can have a relationship with you, that it can be a joyous occasion that reaches way back into the Old Testament has a past connection and a future connection and also a present connection. Thank you for it, Lord. With trying to be faithful in obeying this ordinance until you come which proclaims the name of Christ I just pray that you would just um, examine us now and enable us to come before you in a manner that is pleasing and a manner that is prepared and I pray this in Christ's name amen